Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am super excited about today's episode. So I'm sitting here today with Mike Chastain, and uh, Mike has an absolutely fascinating story. So Mike is a seven-figure firm owner, very rare for us to find also a seven-figure firm seller, <laughs> and is now also helping other law firms out with consulting. It is his new path after since he sold his firm, he had to find something to do. MC Consulting. So Mike, thank you so much for making onto the show. Oh, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, awesome. So I actually wanted to start off in a bit of an unconventional way. So uh, we were talking a little bit on the pre-call about your situation. And for anyone who is thinking about going the path to selling their law firm, what does it look like, uh, you know, nine months and change after the sale for your day-to-day -day these days? Well, for me, I still, so I had a criminal defense firm that I sold and I couldn't just walk away. I had a number of clients that, you know, had hired me specifically to do their trials. So I had three jury trials that I had to do before this year, even though, so I went from basically being the owner to an employee and with an up counsel position so I could have my name on the door. But I still had to do the work for many, many months. And I was commuting back and forth from Sacramento, California to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where my house is go do the trial and then, you know, come back home and, and do things by way of Zoom. So, you know, after nine months, I, I'm down to one case that was supposed to be done, but it got kicked to next year. Uh, nothing I could do about that. And so now I work, as far as the firm goes, basically, I go through all of their analytics, I go through all of their data, all their numbers for revenue. And then I also work with the other lawyers on staffing cases, you know, strategic uh, approaches, what, what should be done and that kind of thing. Okay. So awesome. it's about five to eight hours a week at this okay. point. <laughs> and that's like how the nugget I was looking for too, because it's awesome. And like, it's kind of funny. Um, We've had some previous guests on the show that it just, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was also saying this in the pre-chat. It's like a lot of people kind of think of the seven figure firm as the finish line. But in reality, if you ever want to get to the situation where you're out of it, selling it is not an easy thing either. Um, you know, we had previous guests on the show, Roy Ginsburg, talking about, you know, the difficulty of selling the firm. So I just want everyone who's listening to this to appreciate like how rare of a situation we have with somebody who's not only made it to that first finish line of getting the seven figure practice, but um, also exiting it and like, you know, getting to the point where, yeah, you know, it's a five to eight hour work week too, which is fantastic. But okay. So yeah, I wanted to do a little bit of a kind of a flash, uh, flash forward to the beginning, but um, let's bring it all back, man. So I think um, let's talk about how you ended up getting to starting the firm in the first place and then you know, get into a little bit of the journey. I mean, why'd you start a criminal firm in the first place? Well, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And at that time in 1985, you know, the way to get into the courtroom was either be a DA or a public defender. I mean, at the time I had hair down the middle of my back, no DA's office was going to be interested. So I applied to every public defender's office in Northern California and got very fortunate, uh, got hired in the Santa Clara public defender's office. I stayed there for 17 years until I, you know, the Bay Area just got kind of crazy with the dot-com boom and everything. So I've got three daughters, my wife, my three daughters, and I all moved to Sacramento, uh, and I joined a criminal defense firm there. 
by the time I had been at the PD's office for a few years, I realized that that was my calling. I loved being in trial. Um, I had a lot of good success. I was doing really heavy cases, but you know, would ha was having pretty good success with those. After a few years with this firm, it just became clear that our paths were going to go a different way. And, and so it took me about nine months to, to actually separate, to kind of figure out everything I needed to do to open my own practice. And then that's what I did. The downside was while I was a very good lawyer and um, I'd had great mentors and that, I'd never had a business mentor. Right. And so I just kind of rambled around doing what everybody else seemed to be doing and, you know, spending many nights staring at the ceiling, wondering how I was going to pay the rent. Yeah. So after a few years, well, after a number of years of doing that, I, I finally got sick of it. And I went out and I found mentors to teach me how to run a business. And that's when everything really changed. I started, you know, collecting data, doing the things that needed to be done to make it run like a business. Not, you know, I stopped thinking of it as a law firm. I started thinking of it as a business that provided legal services. Right. And, you know, th then it was, it was just a steady, you know, increase in revenue every single year got to, you know, a million bucks and have been very consistent at that level bouncing around there, you know, with, with three lawyers, no more than three lawyers, we were doing that. So, okay. That's super interesting. And I, I didn't know that was, that was kind of the size of the team, but it's really, uh, one of the things I want to kind of double click on a little bit is, uh, the solo part of that. Right. Cause I feel like there's so many people who end up in the solo, it's almost, uh, you know, I've called this the referral roller coaster. I've called it the solo treadmill before, but a lot of the times, and you know, that's just kind of the nature of legal services. Like you're billing enough per hour where you can be driving car with, you know, three flat tires and still be getting where you want to be. But when you want to really kind of plug those holes, you know, it's not the, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lucrative service business. So you can really start making some damage on that. For anyone who might be in a similar position in the audience, what were kind of the things that were like, did you have like a final straw moment of, of when you decided I gotta, you know, I gotta finally gotta hire somebody. I've finally done with this solo life. Like, what kind of triggered you to make that decision? <laughs> well, the, the the first, so I had gone through iterations of having lawyers work for me, and you know that worked okay. But the the real change for me was when I went out and hired a bookkeeper. Interesting. And I I took basically ten hours of work off of my plate which I absolutely hated and did, you know, a pretty poor job on and sucked it up to, to free up that time. And then, you know, when I realized the math was if I was freeing up 10 hours of my week uh, and I only build a couple of those hours, I was, you know, three times paying for that bookkeeper and taking all that stress off of my, off of my desk. Once I started figuring out that math, realizing that everything I took off my plate gave me the option of billing more hours, then I went from there to a phone person, a full-time phone person, and then bringing in a lawyer. But the, the lawyer was last. It was the support that really changed things for me. Okay, that's really interesting. And what led to the decision to go for the bookkeeper? Was it just like your most hated position? <laughs> or like, did you have some advice to point you in that direction first? Well, so yeah, I had a mentor that I was just starting out with. And he was going over with me, you know, what was I doing? And how was I spending my time? And he's like, why are you doing this? You know, you're not doing a very good job. Let's be honest about it. And you don't like it. And it's just, you know, sucking your life away. So that made a, you know, it, it was surprising. I would not have expected that that would have made that big of a difference, but it did, you know, the stress of having a trust account, you know, and making sure that that was spot on all the time. I mean, as a criminal defense lawyer, the reality is the only way you get disbarred is if you commit a crime or you screw around with your trust fund. Right. And so, you know, making sure that that was to the penny, that was a huge relief for me. And then things started to going forward. And then 
the next big step from there was reading Profit First. Mickey, I actually met Mike Michalowicz, read his book, Profit First, changed my entire accounting system. And we have made a profit from that point forward. So that was a huge change too. All right. That's awesome. And I want to kind of hone in on that too, because it's like, there's almost a couple different levels to that. So there's obviously like, you know, the, the time on the clock, if you want to talk about the hours that you save, that's one. It's an immediate gain right there. Uh, for anyone in the audience who's considering this, and you know, it's, it's a problem, law firm growth podcast. I don't know if you're listening, why you're listening to this, if you're not an attorney, but there's very few professionals that you would not get an arbitrage ongoing hour for hour for. So that's definitely another thing to kind of keep in mind. But I think the last and maybe the most important thing, it's like, I think people, especially at the solo stage, they think about things in terms of time. But the reality is there's also the whole dimension of like energy that people want to wait for. It's like, you have the situation where you're like, damn, you know, I'd love to get through this IOLTA stuff, but if I end up having, you know, I don't want to get disbarred for it. Like that's never something that you can shut off until you're able to fully delegate that to somebody else, which is, you know, that, that's awesome. And then like, you know, as far as um getting that stuff too, I mean, you're probably in a pretty good shape. And I actually haven't had Mike on the podcast yet, but I'm actually a pretty good fan of his book. I actually just read Clockwork about two weeks ago, which is kind of funny, the new revised edition. So I'm sort of familiar with the thing, but um, tell me a little bit more about the profit first stuff. Like, how did that end up? You know, what was what was the 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 pre uh, the, the situation before you ended up encountering that book, and how did it affect your your growth pattern? What it did is, it, uh, by using uh, the profit first uh, system, basically, I wound up opening six accounts. I think I had an operating account, a profit account, a tax account, a payroll account, a holding account, uh, and a uh, a client ex uh, expense account. I, all of those, I had all of those accounts. I just went to the bank and I said, I need all these accounts and I don't want you to charge me anything for it. And I got them to do that. Uh, and then what that allowed me to do is to see exactly where I was as opposed to having all this money sitting in, a, in an operating account, right? And, and then, of course, there's a trust account, but that's, I, I always saw that as totally separate. But if you have a whole bunch of money sitting in, in your operating account, your gut reaction to think is, well, I'm fat and happy and here I can go spend and go buy some new Macs. But if you have it all divided out, you have your profit account, you have your tax account, so Uncle Sam's getting taken care of, you got money set aside for a rainy day, and I, I can tell you a story about why that's so critical, then you have a, realist, a, a much more realistic viewpoint on where you stand at any given moment. And you know, I always kept my operating account really thin. I wanted to always feel a little bit poor so that I didn't go out. You know, I always thought twice about making uh, any major purchases. Oh, gotcha. I'm definitely going to ask you about that rainy day story too. <laughs> that's, that's too that's too enticing to pass up. Yeah, well, so what had happened is is because I was running that account, I, I opened up what I called a holding account, which is just a, a rainy day fund, a savings account, and I built it up to about a hundred grand. You know, for for those unexpected bills, and and by having that money, like we were able to do an, a marketing campaign that no other lawyer in Sacramento could do because we had the cash and. Nobody in our situation did. Anyway, I have a hundred thousand dollars sitting in it. March of twenty twenty shows up, oh, yeah. so <laughs> we go into COVID, right? All of a sudden, the phone's not ringing. No one's going to court. Even on the trust fund stuff, we really can't work on it because nobody's going to court. And I burnt through all but about five hundred dollars of that hundred grand to keep the thing, to keep everything running. I I didn't have to borrow a penny. That was the key is I didn't have to borrow a penny to do that. And then, you know, within, I don't know, five or six months, you know, we got our PPP loan, that really helped. And then when we were able to, you know, get back uh, and adjust to what was really going on, and then we, we doubled down on our, on our advertising and raised our rates. 
We did all that. And and all of a sudden we were, you know, back on course, less clients, more money. It, it worked out really well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then like, you know, having that money in the so like, how do you think that was, you know, well, I mean, I can imagine how that would be super helpful because you know, I'm guessing you didn't have to let anyone go and you were in a position to you, know, you didn't get knocked down below zero. Like you were able to build up from, you know, right when the money ended up coming in, you could spring right into action. You didn't have to hire people, warm up. You were ready to go once that loan came in. Exactly. I mean, we did we did let a law clerk go because things got really slow. We had a lawyer leave um, and we just didn't replace them until things picked up. And the other thing that was interesting, and this has all has to do with having the data of your firm and knowing where your firm is at any, any point. We know what every practice area that we do you know, generates. And we had a very robust DUI practice. Mm. Well, during COVID, it became, uh, it was not profitable anymore. And mm. so we just completely let it go. When that lawyer left, that was what he did. He did DUIs. We let him go. We let the paralegal that was doing the DUIs go. We got rid of a huge part of our marketing budget because DUIs are expensive to market for. And then we just focused on the more serious cases. And again, raised our rates, which always seemed to be the key. And, you know, we got right back on our feet. Okay, that's awesome. So I want to kind of bring it back to those early days. So basically, the profit first accounts gave you a good level of, of analytics. And I want to say as far as the situation with hiring a bookkeeper, that first hire is super tough. Was there anything that you had to go through mentally to go through that? And is there anything that you might want to, you know, warn somebody who's in a similar situation? Like, what is it? What's stopping people from making that first hire? You know, I think it's it's a control thing for many people, you know, they don't want, they don't want to let, you know, take their, their finger off the, off the, the button, I guess. I never did. I never took my finger off the button. I saw everything that she did. I look at my P&L every day. I look at the bank account every day. I'm just not doing all the entries. So my review of that takes, you know, a minute and then I'm done. I look to take a look at the numbers look the way they're supposed to look. Boom. I'm good for the day. But I think it, it was scary. It was scary for me. It was, you know, there were months where, you know, I, I would have to basically pay this bill rather than that bill. And so adding another fixed cost was was scary. But I also understood that if I didn't do something different, it was I was just going to keep getting the same thing. I couldn't work more. That was the problem. It's it's, it's not an hour problem. You you hit it right in the nose. It's an energy problem. You know, at some point you just are out of juice and it's like, you know, I'm worthless. So it's time to go home. So yeah, that but it's scary. Uh it can be very scary for yeah. sure. I also think it's probably easy that like, well, a little bit easier. It's never like super easy, but like, you know, you didn't have to jump into full-time. I think a lot of people, and again, I, I think there's, there's well-meaning advice in this, but a lot of times people that suggest having attorneys the first hire people have. And like, that's crazy sometimes because the amount of a part-time 10 hours a week bookkeeper versus something else, I think you can get a taste of what it looks like for a lot without, you know, risking the, you know, the existential health of, of, of the law firm by making kind of a smaller hop. But um, no, I think that's that's awesome too and just for anyone who's kind of in a similar space too it's just one of those things you know i hear it every single time when people are talking about their stories just like i mean i wish i made that first hire sooner so uh, you know there's obviously a lot of uh mental stuff to kind of go at it different for every person but um no it's always kind of good to have uh, the example there Okay, so I want to also transition to Sue, um, basically talking about that first uh, attorney hire. So I know, you know, kind of the, uh, to speak for the invisible devil's advocate, you're a litigation guy, you're a trial guy. Like a lot of times people think, hey, look, I got the star power, people are hiring for me. How the heck do I hire another attorney when that's kind of the situation? So was there anything you had to change when you brought that other person on? It, or, you know, whether it be at marketing processes, like how you're managing things internally, like what did you have to change to make sure that you're able to kind of keep that service level consistent? 
That's a good question. So we hired, I have to step back a little bit. My biggest problem at the point that I hired a lawyer was cash flow. I just have a good month. You know, when you're doing bigger cases, uh, higher end cases, you don't get that many of them. So I might have, you know, I might have a month and I might, you know, get a, two cases in the next month. I might not get any. So the strategy that I used to deal with this cash flow problem was to open up a DUI practice. I, I didn't do DUIs prior to that. And so I hired a lawyer specifically for that who had a lot of experience doing DUIs and, and we tried to do a whole value thing. What my point was is that I hired someone not to replace me or not to do what I was doing, but to um, handle a very specific part of the practice that I didn't want to do. Now, the idea would eventually, hopefully some of it would rub off on them and they could start doing higher end cases. And then my job at the intake, as we started moving them into that position, was to sell them to the client. You know, yeah, they came in for me, but let me, I, I would always sell the team. Because even in the last few years, I didn't generally go to pre-trials and arraignments and stuff like that, you know, if I could avoid it. Because one, I, I was expensive. I, it was cheaper to send an associate um, for the client. And two, you know, I've probably done 10,000 arraignments, you know, uh, over 37 years. I don't know. I've done, you know, I don't need to do another arraignment. So that would, I've been doing that for a number of years. Um, and then the other thing that I would do with these lawyers is um, I would let them sit second chair during, uh, during my trials. I, I try not to try trials without a second person. Sometimes it's a paralegal, but I prefer it to be a lawyer so they can actually see how I do things and then they can start to develop their own style. Okay, interesting. And as far as where you went for this first attorney hire, was this somebody a little bit more green or did you go experience and like what was kind of led into the decision for who you ended up making that first hire? The person that we hired had hadn't been a lawyer in maybe four or five years, but she had worked for a guy that all he did was DUI. So, you know, I felt her level of experience was pretty high. So I would say she was intermediate. My preference after that was to hire people right out of law school mm -hmm. and you know, teach them the way we do things, you know, right. whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. At least I didn't have to break them of bad habits. We have uh, one lawyer with us um, that's been with us for a number of years, got her out of law school. She went to Georgetown. She was, she's excellent. And um, the, the only struggle for her has been just getting her into trial because of COVID. You know, um, it was really hard to get out on a misdemeanor trial. It's almost impossible. Yeah, that's interesting. And as far as that, because that, that actually, um, I'm surprised that it was a different practice area because it's, and, and as far as, I mean, it looks like the strategy played out as far as this kind of uh, making things work and bringing up for the higher value stuff. But did you have to change anything else on the business? And um, actually, this is a question I should ask a, a few, few ones back. Like, what did your marketing situation look like at that point? How are you bringing cases into the firm? Well, before I got, you know, someone to help me out with all of this, I was basically living on referrals and appointed cases, which I mean, I was glad I had those appointed cases, but man, it, I was losing money on them. It just was helping, you know, bring some cash in. This sort of boils back down to knowing what your data is and figuring out who are your clients. So when I opened up my firm, instead of moving to Sacramento, where every lawyer lives, right, or has a practice. We moved out to a town about 30 miles east called Gold River, and we opened our practice there, where we instantly were on the front uh, first page of Google if you were in that area. Mm. And then we focused on basically this corridor that ran north and south for the clients. So we didn't look for clients in Sacramento. We looked for the clients that were geographically close to us so we could market to them or we could SEO to them really easily. And that really made a big difference. The other thing we did is we did do jail mail for quite a while. And for the DUI practice, that was, you know, that was worthwhile. 
And then the final thing is I wrote books. Um, I've written, you know, I wrote a DUI book, a, D, a DV book, a general criminal book, a sex book, and they're very informational, but they are marketing material, right? We give those to clients when they show up. So that, you know, that's very valuable too. Yeah. So you really like to kind of take advantage of this unexploited, almost kind of like a geographical niche. And then it seems like you invested pretty heavily in the branding stuff with like the books and that all ended up being, and then did you ever go into, was it mostly the SEO stuff or do you guys ever get into the billboard ads or the radio stuff or beyond the jail mail? I actually had a radio show for almost four years. Really? Uh, yeah. I would do a morning, uh, a more, a Monday morning radio show for an hour on a very, very small station, but it, that was part of the branding issue. And, you know, and then we just started doing Facebook live instead of doing it on the radio. We did a uh, Facebook live for a while. Um, so you're right. Branding, you know, matters and, and having a, you know, a somewhat unusual name, but not impossible to, to uh, remember um, has helped, you know, cause people remember the name. And so that's, that's been good. And then you know, there's just a function of doing it for a long time. I mean, I have to say I, I was in Sacramento. I was in San Jose for almost 17 years. I've been in Sacramento for 20 years. Right. So, you know, there's just some value in that. Gotcha. And then as far as kind of like, yeah, to, to get this back on the on sorry, to kind of get some timelines on this. So we had solo for a couple of years. First attorney hire was what, a couple of years in? Yeah, I brought in um, a guy who who subsequently left and uh, is, is remained a good friend, but I brought in a lawyer and a paralegal at the same time and just tried to grind out more work. But our, our big mistake was, or my big mistake was, is, is we weren't charging enough. Yeah. It just was as simple as that. We just weren't charging enough. So, you know, it was, it was paycheck to paycheck for a, a long time. And then I, I gutted everybody, everybody left. I was totally by myself again, um, for about a year and a half. And then, you know, then I brought in the, the bookkeeper and then I brought in basically a phone person who was also the office manager, if you will. She was doing a lot of that stuff for me. And then it wasn't until later that I started bringing in paralegals and then, well, I'm sorry, I brought in a lawyer and then I brought in a paralegal to, to support both of us. Okay. Let's definitely talk about raising rates too, because I think this is one of the most like underrated levers in business, but it's also one of the hardest ones to do. So can you talk about like what ended up leading the decision and like what it was like to go through that and how it felt after you ended up raising your rates? Well, I will have to say every time I've raised my rates, the phone rings more. It's, Interesting. You know, I don't think that this is unique to criminal defense lawyers, but people like to have the best criminal defense lawyer they can get. The kind of work we do, people are looking at going to prison for the rest of their lives in, in many cases. So they want the best person on their team and they don't seem to... They don't seem to be too concerned about what the hourly rate is or whatever. It's it's really what do they have? What can they afford? You know, can they access the kind of money that that they need to access to get us on board? And every time we've done it, as I say, it is just funny. The phone rings more. People, it doesn't it doesn't scare them away. It really yeah. doesn't. Yeah, because it's kind of funny. Like you know, I think a lot of the invisible voice in people's head when they're considering this is like they're thinking to like some you know econ one hundred and one uh, cost volume curve, and they're like, well, certainly I could raise my rates, but uh, you know, of course, so the volume is going to go down. And it's it's weird too because it's like I think um man, I think this was from uh, influenced by Cialdini. I think it's like a lot of people associate price with higher quality. I'm sure there's people who don't end up improving their quality, which is probably to the, not the, to the detriment of anyone in the market. But I think the other thing too, is that like, you know, when you have the situation where you're making more profit, you know, where did that go in your scaling the business? You're probably having more 
time to or like more you know money to invest in better staff or even if you don't change the staff you have more time to focus on the cases that you do have it's like you know there's nothing worse in the world you know there's nothing worse than a broke lawyer and like what they're actually able to fulfill on their client right right no no question about it but having a full staff so I mean we have eight employees um uh you know three three lawyers including myself at this point although I'm not doing much in the way of billables but three lawyers are working on getting an, another one in we have a controller we have this is in house we have a, a person who does all our phone work. So, I mean, that's all she does is the phone work, right? Mm -hmm. It's really critical that every phone call gets followed up on and every interview gets, you know, reviewed um, and followed up on. If they, if they didn't hire, we're going to, we're going to be talking to you in a couple of days to see if we can still help getting the people to show up in the appointment, setting the appointments, all of that, all of that scripted out. And then we have a paralegal. And then we have a guy who actually crunches all of our numbers so that I get a report every single day in Mexico. And, you know, compared to American rates, he's very inexpensive. He does a great job. And within minutes, I can pretty much answer any question you have about the firm over the last, you know, what's our best month? What, you know, what quarters aren't as good? How is our leads doing versus how they did, you know, a year ago or two years ago? I mean, that's really important data when you're trying to decide where am I going to spend my hard-earned money on marketing um, or, you know, practicers. Yeah. And kind of going on the, the metric stuff too, because I think, you know, this is a theme ever since you ended up getting the profit first stuff. So obviously we have money in the bank account as a key metric, but what are the other, you know, key performance indicators that you like, you know, if you could, you know, let us into two or three of the top metrics that you're looking at day to day to see, Hey, are we having a good week. Are we having a bad week right now. Right. So there, there's, there's past indicators, which is, you know, what's your payroll to the percentage of your payroll to your revenue? What's the percentage of your marketing to your revenue? And what's what's your net to your revenue? Those are the three numbers that I look at um, on a regular basis. Those tell me how we have done. How we are going to do is going to, what I'm looking at is how many leads are coming in, how many are setting for appointments, well, how many are qualified for our services, how many set appointments, how many show up and how many hires. That's telling me what our future revenue is going to be. And if our, um, if any of those numbers changes in any you know statistically significant way i want to know why and sometimes it's it's really simple sometimes people get off script sometimes it's just a weird a bad week but over you know uh at least a month th those things should level out our lead should be pretty consistent month to month to month our sets should be consistent and if they're not i want to know why and then we we try to address it so that we don't get too far behind the eight ball that's the that's the problem, right? Is if you don't pay attention, all of a sudden it's six months and you're you know you're wondering where where all your money go. Yeah, right. I want to know: Am I going to have a problem next month? And I can tell that um, by the analytics that I have this month. Yeah. It's it's super fights. So this is something that's kind of coming up a lot recently because basically, you know, this is something we talk about the importance of the front desk person. I think. You know, both in talking about in this context and the fact that it was the second person that you hired, I mean, it's obviously like a super important thing. And every single time we've had to look at this stuff internally, or we end up looking at this stuff for, for a client who's having issues with this, you can always point to some sort of a process not being followed when it comes to this. And it's like, you know, it's very easy for people to say, oh, yeah, well, hey, look, it's back to school. No one's picking up or man, I don't know this, you know, market's really tough here or something like that. But it's like, look, if you do the work, it works almost every single time. And um, I'm surprised we have <laughs> asked this earlier, but I mean, you're a big operations guy. So how do you think about getting process in place, training people like that kind of things? Like, I mean, what, what's sort of your philosophy for getting people trained up and, and performing consistently outside of the metrics? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So it's it's all about developing your scripts and your anticipated responses. So everyone in our firm answers the phone the same way. Everyone does an intake, the initial phone intake, the same way. We have a sheet that they have to, that they're required to fill it out, and it tells them all the questions to ask. Yeah. So if I get that sheet and and that's not filled out, I go and say, well, why didn't this get filled out? What, what's the you know what what happened? And sometimes you know things get sidetracked, right? And the person on the phone's crying, and and you just don't get to some of the questions. And that's what I want to know. Is this a is this a unique? problem where you just start starting to not follow the script. The second part is, is, is trying to train on a pretty regular basis. Now that's been hard with the schedules that the lawyers have, but going over those numbers with everybody and trying and, and reviewing the work that gets done. We even listen to some of the phone calls and go, you know, are you staying on script? Are you doing what we're supposed to do? If you are, and the numbers are falling, then we need to start considering whether to change the script in some way. Mm -hmm. But if you're not following the script, then we don't have, we have no way to A, B test, right? That's right. really what we're talking about is, is we do it this way and we're going to make this single change and see if that affects things. And so the script, the script, the script works. I just tell you, I've been using the same script for about five years and the scripts work. Yeah. Uh, and I see the problem happening. And even on the intake, when I sit down with a, a client or on the phone, I have a process that I'm supposed to go through and I see my higher rate drop when I deviate from it. You know, yeah. if I just stick to it, it works. Yeah. And just out of curiosity too, I always like to ask this for different practices. Do you guys like, what's your benchmark for in terms of how many leads you get into that'll actually end up booking a consultation? What do you guys shoot for? So we've been pretty consistent around 80 leads and that turns into about 12 clients. Okay. Um, so we, we've been running about a 40% higher rate, which has been real good. So what's that get us about? Uh, 24 on 80? 24, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, cool. So I'm trying to do the math on that. So yeah, it's like 35-ish percent probably if I'm going. <laughs> yeah, so got. of the 80 leads... You know, we'll probably have uh, 20% of them won't be qualified. They just won't be cases that we either do or in a jurisdiction that we do it in. So our net, our SEO net maybe is a little bit wide. And it's funny, we get calls for, you know, family law in Tennessee, you know, every <laughs> once in a while. They're like, thanks, but no. But the, uh, you know, and then and then from there, it's a matter of getting those appointments set and getting people to, to you know, agree to show, uh, agree to, to, to come in and then to get them to show up. Yeah, the show rate. Well, I mean, it's kind of like if you're if you're throwing out twenty five percent, that's twenty four consultations booked on on sixty. That's damn near fifty percent. That's that's pretty good. And like I'll say this too, just as far as our what we've seen generally, and mostly in the estate planning space, twenty five to fifty is usually fifty is incredible. So that's that's actually uh, it's a it's a really good numbers. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's the consistency and just applying stuff. But I want anyone to think like it's funny because people will usually try to look at anything except for the process first, <laughs> you know, right. uh, including. Right people inter inside the firm too so it's like you know it's just one of these things i feel like and and it's such a powerful lever too because when you have the situation where your front desk is booking that empowers so much you know your your dollar in marketing is going faster than somebody who's got a 10 percent book rate and probably going better than somebody but you know the other thing too is just kind of going back to that bedrock of the metrics how can you tell whether anything's working unless you know what the standard is and what it was last week and what it is this week right Exactly. No, that's that's the key. And the other thing that we we have learned is the way the script is designed, we get a certain percentage of people who show up ready to hire, you know, before they even meet us because they get, are sold during the, the intake. 
Right. You know, it gets mentioned. So if they call in with a sex case, it gets mentioned, you know, I've written a book on how to survive being accused of a sex crime. So I have this book out there and we'll give that to you when you show up. And there isn't anybody else in our in our area that wrote a book, much less forum. So, you know, it, it gives you that instant credibility and a lot of people show up and they're just ready to hire. And, yeah. and then, you know, um, so if, if she's not able to do that, I mean, I've had, I've had people come in and say, you know, that gal you get at the front desk, man, she's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, you, I'm not so sure about, but she's great. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. That's, yeah. you know, that's exactly what I want to hear. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so I want to make sure we, we get to talk about this because I know we're getting a little late on time, but um, let's talk about the sale. So basically, how did that end up working out? So I know um, you know, that it was finalized towards the end of last year, but who's the buyer? Did you sell to the partners? Did you have an outside buyer? What was kind of the situation that set that up? And like, you know, just to kind of go back to the beginning for anyone who's listening, it's you know, it is not easy to sell a law firm. So let's talk about that process a little bit. Sure. So there was there was a long preparation period. And then a really good series of lucky things that happened, if I'm going to be honest about it. So I had gone back to my mentor and I, I told him I wanted to sell the firm. And uh, we spent a couple hours going through all the matrix. Because I had all these numbers, I could justify exactly what you were going to do. If, if you bought my firm and you just did what I do, you could be almost guaranteed doing a million bucks for your very first year. So, and I had the numbers to back all that up. And so we had, we had con uh, contacted a broker and we had thought about, you know, contacting firms that might want to absorb us. But my wife said to me, she said, you know, can you think of anybody that you know that might be interested? Why don't we, why don't we go for the low-hanging fruit? Mm. And I thought about it for a while and I came up with one name, a guy that I didn't know on a personal level, but I knew by reputation. He was a public defender in Placer County. And I liked him and I and I thought it had the potential of being a good fit. So I I called him up and I just said, hey, Martin. Well, actually, I saw him in a parking lot on his way to court. And I said, hey, would you be interested in working for him? And he said, yeah, but I got to go give closing argument. I'll call you later. So he called me. We sat down. We had lunch. And I, and I just kind of laid it out for him. I'm looking to sell this. I want someone who I know is good that will you know, pick up the ball and continue to do what, what I've been doing with my support. And, over, and basically, we hired him for three months to make sure it was a good fit before we went through all of the pain of the sale. And once we knew that it was going to work, we had a lawyer draft up a contract for us, a business contract, you know, that was neutral and boom, the sale went through. So I got very lucky on that. I didn't have to go in the, in the public market, but you know, I let him buy it on time and um, I had to stay for, you know, that was part of the contract, part of the deal. I have to stay at least on the business side of it to make sure that things work because he had never run a business certainly not a law firm before. Okay. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting too. I think in the broader business world, a lot of people think about that, like it's an earnout or something like that too. But I mean, it seems it's, this is kind of the interesting thing. Like whenever the, the topic of, of selling a business comes up, it's like when you get a business that's anyone would want to sell, actually running the thing isn't that hard. And <laughs> it's kind of the paradox, right? Like it's an right. easy, it's, it's the easiest thing to keep doing, but it doesn't seem like it's killing you at the moment too, but that's kind of the yeah. reality. Well, we, so, you know, I, I'm very proud to say it really was turnkey. I mean, Martin came in, they made a few changes, but they didn't need, they didn't need to change anything. All the employees stayed, you know, which I think is a good sign that we were paying everybody fairly. And I mean, literally he just, you know, started running things um, and using his credit card as opposed to my credit card you know, to, to pay for stuff. But, you know, to your, I think the question that you were alluding to is I didn't do this because I hated it. I, I, I still like doing trials. 
I just want to go to court anymore, you know, and I love Santa Fe. It's a great place. And there's other things that I want to do. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, I can't do it anymore. Or I don't want to do it anymore. I feel like, I mean, the last three trials we I, I did. Um, I had a client who stabbed a guy or shot a guy nine times. He was acquitted. Mm-hmm. I had a guy charged with 11 counts of child molest. He was acquitted. So, you know, I still feel like I'm at the top of my game. It's just, I'd like to bow out, you know, before I'm not. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing too. It's like, it's kind of funny. I'm a big MMA fan, but it's, it's like hard to find the people who are, have the opportunity to write off and like, you know, have a happy ending. Cause it's, you know, I look at some of the greats, like only a handful of people do it. So many people saying it way too long. And, and that's what was last time we had Roy Ginsburg on the podcast. He said, you know, for the most part, it's not going to be you closing out your files. It's going to be your wife or your kids after you end up passing away. The amount of people that end up dying at their desk, waiting for the things to, to go is, is way too much. But you know, as far as a happy ending goes, I mean, it's awesome, man. You got a ton of life ahead of you you're doing what you want and any of the involvement that you have with the business is the stuff that you enjoy the most so it's like you know who wouldn't want to do that right right no i i i mean this is the stuff that i'm teaching other firms now and we apply it in our own sandbox and and you know we have a call just an example i was looking at the numbers the other the other day and there was a number that i didn't like and i'm like let's call our seo guy we got to figure out why that number is what it is Mm -hmm. because it's dropped and, and it shouldn't so you know, I'm doing for Chastain Jones, the same thing I'm doing for other folks. Um, it's just, I know this one much more intimately. Well, let's transition to that a little bit. So as far as the, the work that you've been doing with other firms, like what kind of people you've been working out and, and like, you know, what have been some of the, the situations that you've, you've been able to help most in your opinion? So I, I work with small and, and solo uh, practitioners to help them do that transition from being a law firm owner to being a business owner. I mean, I think that's the mindset that you've got you've to gotta break into and start thinking of, of your firm as being a, a separate entity. It's not you. It's a separate entity. And you know, th- then all of a sudden doors open and you have options uh, to, if you wanted to sell it, you could build it properly and sell it. But what I find is that where most people are struggling right from the get-go is their time management. And it goes back to the bookkeeper thing, right? They're doing all their own stuff and not giving themselves the opening to do things that bring in cash. Bookkeeping never brought a nickel to me. It just kept me from losing my bar card, right? Kept me from being sued. It's really important, but it didn't bring in a nickel. I needed to be out working, either bringing in clients or, uh, you know, going to court and doing my thing. Right. And then, so basically, as far as the people getting out, it's like, you know, getting out of it and, uh, you know, people honestly trying to get on the goal to either sell or automate their business, right? It's kind of the same path, isn't it? Actually, it is. If you if you can separate yourself out so that things get done without you being present, just like what Mike talks about in Clockwork, then you have the ability to multiply the revenue because it's not all based on the hours that you can put in. And you also have the, the freedom to spend time on the business. I mean, you know, everything that we talk about, when I made this shift, I started putting a, a substantial period of time on working on the business. So I, you know, so that it would become profitable so I could review these numbers so I could understand what was going on. And that's why I raised my rates because mm-hmm. I had fewer hours that I could, that I was going to bill and I, and I wanted to try to maintain that, that income. Yeah. And you're not going to be working on the business when you're doing your books or taking out the trash too, which a lot of people don't, don't realize. But, um, you know, that's awesome. And I know we're, um, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here and I want to be respectful of your time, Mike, but, um, you know, as far as any situations, like if you're, if you're open for clients, what's the best uh, way for anyone who's listening to this that might be resonating that to, uh, to get in touch? Yeah. So the, the best way to get a hold of me, you can email me directly at mchastain, that's C H A S. T 
T-A-I-N-E at Gmail. Or you can go to my website, MikeChastain.com. It is being revamped. So if you go today, it may be a little different tomorrow, but functionally you, there's a contact button um, and it will explain, you know, kind of the, the things that we're doing. Um, and the people that we're working with. But those are the two easiest ways. And then what we do is I would set a, a, a 45 minute appointment, go over, you know, what your situation is. Can I help you? And are you interested in working with me? And it, would this be a good fit? And if the answer to that is yes, then we'll come up with a game plan. All right. That's awesome. And then as, as far as like, you know, uh, thank you again so much for taking the time, Mike, but it's for where everyone else, I want to kind of bring it back to the beginning. You said when you started focusing on it, it started growing. And I think a lot of people get in the own way and try to make things too complicated. But you know, when you have these this orientation towards the process, again, beginning with the end in mind, having these ways to make things and, and fix the gaps and, and know what you're doing from the metrics, right? Like such an important thing. I think it's been an awesome exploring your journey. And um, yeah, for anyone who's who's interested, um, for sure, we're gonna have that in the show notes uh, so you can reach out. But um, Mike, super appreciate the time. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.